Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is a man who at 19 years old was introduced to the U.S. criminal justice system, where he spent four years in a federal penitentiary for stealing millions of dollars. It was in prison where he was first introduced to the world of drugs and a halfway house upon his release when he first began using them. And in failing drug tests and violating his terms of parole, he would end up spending a total of another four years in prison. He is a fellow North Carolinian, and he joins us on the Peace on Drugs podcast to tell his story. He is currently writing a memoir. So peace nicks, peaceaholics, peaceheads. Today's guest is Mark Suarez. Let's hit this bomb. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Yeah, man, what's going on? Not much. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah, good. Thanks, thanks for asking me to have me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. Kevin's a good friend of mine. He said you'd be a great guest, and you guys go back a while. So, um, yeah. For, oh, mm-hmm. sorry. So, yeah. So, thanks for I doing this. Show. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, man. I was listening to some of the podcasts today. I, I don't know. Um, you got some pretty great guests on there. I don't know that I'll, I'll hold up with them, but. Well, the idea behind telling a story, because my podcast is about, you know, the war on drugs. And I was listening to this journalist explain that when you want to tell a story, you have to tell the whole story. So you can't just talk to people who are, you know, there's so many sides to the war on drugs. And, you know, and he said you had a unique story. You spent time in prison and um, and you have a story about, uh, was it drug violation, stuff like that. So it's just t- to tell the whole story, we have to tell all angles. And I think your angle will be a great something to add to the story. Awesome. Awesome. So, so yeah, what's, um, what's your story? Let's, let's, let's talk about it. So it's almost, <clears throat> almost, I don't know where to start. Um, uh, to have ended up in this place, uh, I started in a much different place. Um, so uh, I was raised here in North Carolina. Uh, mom and dad were great. I was raised up a real, um, very strict Christian, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole life, you know, just walk the, the straight and narrow. Um, one problem, though, with, with some of, um, I guess, specifically that religion, maybe other religions, too, is uh, to them, you know, if you smoked a cigarette, um, you slept with your girlfriend, you killed somebody, all the same. There's, there's no graduation there. Um, so what happens is as, as a late teenager, you start smoking cigarettes and smoking weed and sleeping with your girlfriend. And, um, you know, there's, there's no good moral compass there. Um, so, yeah, so, so made some really bad decisions um, at, at 19. Had never been in trouble before and uh, end up in federal prison. Um, for four and a half years, um, just the softest, you know, most unstreet, nerdy kid you could imagine. 
um, in federal prison. So, so that was an experience. Actually, for the most part, it was pretty great. Um, yeah, I mean, besides the fact that you're in prison, I mean, you can build a life in there and, um, you know, as long as you don't, uh, piss off the wrong people, I mean, you should, you can be okay. So I taught GED classes in there. Um, and that was, I ran a GED program at two different prisons and that was kind of the key because, um, when the guys graduated, they got to go to the visiting room and actually sit down with their family. And then after the graduation, they got to like sit there and eat some cake. So, uh, with their kids, that is an unimaginable gift for a lot of them. Um, and so if you're the, the person that holds the key to that and you help all those guys, um, pass a GG and get it, you know, it ends up being, being pretty, I mean, not a bad life. Right. So pretty fulfilling, mm-hmm. um, up to that point, I had never really done drugs, um, smoke weed, drank, um, but I'd never done anything like Coke or heroin or crack or meth or anything. I, I wouldn't even, even know what they look like or what they're called, how you would get them, anything. They just, it wasn't in my life. But being in prison, and especially in federal prison, you know, 70%, maybe more of the guys that are there uh, are drug offenders. And, um, you know, that wasn't my offense. Um, what, what was your offense? But that's, so I worked for BB&T and figured out a way um, to steal a whole bunch of money. So I stole a whole bunch of money, millions of dollars. Wow. And uh, yeah, they, they weren't able. So it was weird back then. It was weird. They didn't have computers. There's Wait, a two-day settle. 96. 96, okay. Yeah. So they were still using like the manual machines and banks. There's a two-day float. We had to send all of our work to a central location. Buy checks back then, really, you know, that's everything took a couple of days. Um, and so there was a there was a uh, a weakness there, and and I figured out how to, you know, whatever, steal a bunch of money. Um, and and they weren't able to prove it. So, so they didn't know if I was the worst bank teller of all time, um, or I stole all that money. There's no way to know. And you were just a bank um, teller and you figured that out. That's pretty, that's pretty yeah. crazy. So after that, um, you know, I, I guess I kind of, you know, felt well in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, so my friend came up to me about a year later after that um, and said, hey, you know, I work for the post office. There are these trucks that you don't even know are, are postal trucks. It's a U.S. mail on the side, and they're full of mail. But in each one of those trucks, there's certain bags, you got to know what to look for, that are literally full of money. So all the money that comes out of the postal services at the end of the day, this truck goes around, collects the mail, collects the insured mail, and collects the deposits, puts in the back of that truck. And it's like a $13 an hour contract guy driving. He has no idea. Um, so, um, but some of them can have, you know, millions of dollars on it. So, so I hijacked one of those trucks, um, and took all the money, but that was my downfall because of course the guy, my friend that worked in the post office, uh, 
uh, ended up getting in trouble and, and through him, I did. Um, so yeah, so that's the, the very short, not successful story of, of the criminal career. Only times I ever got in trouble. But the thing about that is they were really, really mad, really angry about the post office thing. I didn't even know there's an entire federal law enforcement arm, uh, the postal inspectors. They are no joke. They carry guns. They are fully like whatever invested federal agents. And all they do is the mail. Not like the FBI. There's a million different things. The Secret Service is a million different things. They all have these huge areas of responsibility, except the postal inspectors. They only do the mail. Um, and something like this to happen here had never happened. Um, and there was no... was clean at the at the site so there was there was no lead there through the actual robbery um and 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 taking the truck so um but eventually they got to my friend they figured it out um yeah so but it all worked out i was actually able to go in and work with the bank that i took all that money for and in addition in exchange for me telling them how i did it so they could make sure no one could ever do it again uh, they cut my sentence in half. Oh, wow. That's a, yeah. kind of like a catch me if you can kind of thing where he ended up working for the FBI that he was, that they were chasing him. I mean, it's a little different, but it's pretty yeah. cool though. It, a, a much, a much, well, it was just such a different time. You know, there weren't cameras in the drive through. There weren't, I mean, it was just, you couldn't do anything like that now, but yeah. So, so I ended up in federal prison and, and everyone in there is, you know, mostly a drug dealer. Um, and Remember, I had never really bought a drug before, even in my life. Uh, and now I was in there with all these guys. And it was really interesting to hear their stories. Um, you know, they, um, I, I guess we all have stereotypes, I guess, most people of, of what those guys would be like. And in reality, you know, it, it's so different. Um, and, and each of the circumstances is so different. And you can, I mean, so I had a front row seat to the, to the overreach of the war on drugs. I mean, you know, one of my closest friends, kind of a mentor, um, had got a life sentence for, uh, for marijuana. He was a pilot, uh, for the CIA and flew back and forth for Ollie North. And about Kenny Kubinski? Um, Kenny Kubinski. Yeah. Um, he was ended up, well, by the time I met him, he had already been in there for 20 or 25 years um he's home now kenny if you're listening i love you um but he was one that turned out to be one of the real leading um uh proponents in in the whole country of this restorative justice concept uh, and he was able to kind of mentor me in that it was really interesting um and to, to participate in some of that where you go into these rooms and sit around in a circle and then you have all these guys in there talking about who they hurt and and, and what that meant, um, you know, and to, to take it seriously, it was really cool. Um, really cool. So, um, so skip ahead, I guess I get out, um, in 2003 and, um, within six months, I'm shooting cocaine, shooting heroin, just everything. You started that in while you were locked up is when you started using those things. No. No, I, I, I got out um, and they put you in a halfway house, which is a terrible idea because 
you're in this house with, with all these people and everybody just got out. And I mean, it, you know, they're privately run, they're for profit. They're kind of a scam. Um, you know, they, it's real, it's really not well run facility. And I mean, that's where I started doing it. I actually met a girl in there who used to run a heroin ring at Temple University uh, and got released. And um, one day she was like, you know, it'd be really sexy is if I shot you up. And I was like, all right. That was your first that's, time. That was the first time. Yeah, that's how it started. Um, um, what, what did you think about it? Like when, when it hit you, what was the, because before you had only smoked marijuana before this, right? Right. Well, I mean, drugs are, drugs are great, right? I mean, that first time, of course, where you have negative consequences or you don't have negative consequences, but it just exists that feeling the first time you do something and that, that feeling is going to exist on its own by itself. Right. Um, and with no context, um, in your body or in your mind. So it was great, but I mean, it didn't change my life or anything. It's just that you start doing it more and more. And then all of a sudden, cause you don't know any better. You realize you have a habit. Mm-hmm. It happens for a lot of um, people, especially when you're yeah. using it to fill a void when you, you know, you've just got out of prison you, um, what was your relationship with your family at that point? It was good. Um, my family was, was really amazing. They were, they were there for me. They made the decision to stick by me. Um, when I got out, you know, my brother had a car for me and made sure I had what I needed. It's very difficult when you get out. Um, you know, you, you don't have a driver's license, but you know, most people, you don't have the documents you even need to get a driver's license or an ID, you know? And the idea that most people get home after doing a long time in prison can go to the same drawer and they have their birth certificate and their social security card and all that. I mean, just things happen over time. Uh, so it's very difficult to get started, to open a bank account, even to get a cell phone. I mean, so many things that, that we really take for granted. I remember walking down the street when I first got out and I saw a woman pull up to a gas uh, to a gas station, pulled up to the pump, got out, talking on her phone, swiped a card, filled her car up, got in her car and drove away. And all of that just blew my mind because I was so far away from being able to be in a position in life where I could have done any of those actions, had wow. a car, had a bank account, been on a phone, had somewhere even to go, um, obviously, and, and had a job and had my, my shit together. I remember thinking, you know, it did, it seemed um, out of reach, but, it, but my family, you know, helped me um, kind of get back established. I was very fortunate with that. Yeah. I think people that don't have that uh, help from their family, it's like you say, it's a, a mountain you have to climb, but having somebody there for you to help push you up that mountain that that's already up, you know, they're already up on the mountain. And that's, that's so important because so many people, especially kids who come from, uh, regions that have been really hit hard by the drug war, inner city areas that they're, you know, they, their fathers and their, their you know, brothers, they've all spent time locked up criminal records. They don't have their, they, a lot of them don't have careers because of criminal records they have. So they don't have that family support in the way that some of us that I was lucky enough to have too. When I got in legal trouble, my mom was able to get a lawyer and, you know, get out of things. And it was really fortunate to have that. I didn't have the experience with prison that you have, just jail a few times for drugs, but yeah, it's hard to climb out once you have that record, the rap sheet. And, you know, you say you're trying to do these things. 
uh, trying to get your life back, put it back together one piece at a time. Yeah, I mean, the the system, you know, that that's a, a huge opportunity. I know there are a lot of groups that work for that. But, um, you know, the thing is about being locked up, you you learn how how to live successfully. But nothing about living successfully in prison translates to living successfully on the street. They're almost opposite. The ways that you have to be in there, the ways you have to think, the 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 ways you have to be emotional or not be emotional, all of that is completely opposite is when you get out. So you already get out and everything that you're used to doing that is successful in your life, all these ways of being, you get out and it's not successful. And no one else is like that. So that's something that, you know, guys are dealing with. And then on top of that, you know, just like to get a job, to get a, a license, to have a car, to get a bank account, to get a, um, to even know to set an appointment at DMV. I mean, you have to, you know, it's, it's um, the way things change so quickly. So yeah, it can be real, it can be real difficult. I was fortunate. Um, I was very fortunate, not that it mattered because I, I still kept doing drugs. Right. Um, you know, and, and being in, in addiction. Well, I was asking about your family's help because um, as a Jehovah's Witness, I, I grew up, I grew up in North Carolina as well. I'm from Gastonia and um, and I grew up very religious, but we were Baptists. But I have a, a friend of mine who grew up Jehovah's Witness in Pennsylvania and he was on the podcast. He was my seventh guest and he talked his, told his story, but I don't know if, because he said it's family by family, how strict they are with their religious codes. But in the Jehovah's Witness church, if you get caught doing drugs or anything, you can be disfellowshipped. And that happened to his best friend. His best friend got caught doing meth. They disfellowshipped him. He was in a really bad place. So they cut him off and he ended up killing himself. And this happens to a lot of people. Once they start getting in trouble, they're like, until they find their way back to God, we won't talk to them. And, but your family wasn't like that. It sounds like. Um, so they weren't, so I was disfellowshipped as well. Um, but, uh, when I, when I first got home, um, so yeah, so I was, I was disfellowshipped and my family did make that, um, you know, did make that decision and, and I'll be forever grateful to them, uh, because they are extremely devout, uh, in that church, but there's, you know, not going to turn their back on me. Right. Um, but it was funny since, you know, a little bit about this, when I got home, I went back to one of the meetings because I wanted to get reinstated just for my dad, for my mom and dad, mm-hmm. right? Because now I'm home. I want to be able to be somewhat a part of their life. And so I went to one meeting and one of the elders that I've known my whole life that I grew up with, he called me, said, you want to talk to me? So, so I go meet him for coffee and he asks me if I intend on coming back and getting reinstated, you know, getting reinstated. I said, yeah, you know, I know it's going to take a long time. I, you know, with everything I, I know, it'll probably take a year, but I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll keep coming. <laughs> so he told me they'd make a deal with me. Um, he said, you're, I know you're probably just doing it for your mom and dad. and We love your mom and dad. We'll reinstate you if after you're reinstated, you promise me you're not going to come. We, we don't want you there in the kingdom hall. But we'll reinstate you if you just kind of stay away. I wish I could remember the words used, but that that was exactly what it was. Wow. They didn't even and ask if you actually were interested in being a part of the church. No, I mean I'm pretty sure they knew oh. that I was. And you, and you did. I may have even. 
Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, so that worked out. So, like, two weeks later, they reinstated me, and I've kept my word. I've never been back. Um, and to this day, because my sister, my niece, my nephews, they're all very devout as well, but at least I'm able to be around them. Yeah, that's that's, so. that's amazing, because that's one thing I'm lucky about with the Baptist church is that they're not quite like that with it. Like, um, I've told them, you know, over and over that I'm not, that I don't believe in that stuff, and um, but that I've, you know, respect for those if you find happiness in it then good for you I'm, I'm happy for you i just i'm i'm not into it and they don't push it on me too hard i mean every once in a while my mom will call me and try to talk to me about the rapture or something like that and i just tell her you know all right that's your thing mom i get it but i'm not into it and she says you know promise me if we disappear then that you'll you'll change your mind i was like if you vanish i will can reconsider this whole thing but until then but um yeah so and and so you're in north carolina also the bible belt um where at north carolina uh, i'm in fayetteville right now but i'm uh i moved down here for a job recently but i've been in raleigh the last the last years well, raleigh's a cool area i've not been to fayetteville that's a military town i've had some friends from there but um and uh kevin said something about you living in boone at some point or did he get um I didn't live in Boone. I used to live uh, in Winston-Salem out, out near there. Yeah, Winston-Salem's um, cool town too. It is. It is. But um, so, so we're at the halfway house. This, this is a little relevant. Let me, um, so I end up doing the exact same amount of time I did that we just talked about again for nonviolent drug violations. You're violating your probation. Yeah. I did four more years. Wow. Just for that. And so when we talk about, you know, um, the system kind of be a, being stacked against um, guys and, and, and girls that are just home from prison, you know, you, you walk into a situation where you're free, but you always have this thing called supervised release, right? It's kind of like parole, but parole doesn't exist anymore in the federal system. So you have this thing called supervised release. So no matter... Whenever you finish your sentence, no matter what, you you have another sentence um, of being supervised by a probation officer. And in that sentence, uh, however long it is, you can break rules, not laws. Uh, and it's really up to their discretion and they can send you back. Um, and I was incredibly bad at that system in, in the beginning uh, because, you know, they're drug testing you. And once you have one positive drug test, then they're drug testing all the time, coming to your work, coming to your house, middle of the night. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, so violated three times, all for, all for that. And by the end, um, and so that's what addiction does, right? You, um, you lose your freedom over it. You go back and then you come back out and you do the same thing you end up getting caught into the same thing. But what would you say to somebody who would just say, why don't you just not do drugs when you get out, just go through your probation and don't do drugs. Now I'm not saying I would ever say that because I understand, but I'm asking what you would say to someone who would say that. I'd say that that's a great plan. I mean, you know, I, I would have signed up for that plan. I thought I was a great plan, but you know, it's not really that easy, is it? So, no, I mean, I went to, so, and in, to, in the government's um, defense, 
they sent me to rehab. I mean, inpatient, like 90 day inpatient rehab. They sent me twice um, as well as made me go to all the NAAA rational recovery. I've been all of them. I, I've all the rooms. Um, they even sent me to, a, um, to the psychologist. But for me, my experience has been until I was ready to quit, I wasn't going to quit. And then one day I'm just ready to quit. And it's funny, ever since that day, I haven't done anything. Um, and it's, it's, it's no more or less successful than it ever was. And that's been, now we're talking about, that's been 10 years ago since, um, you know, but it is, um, it, it is crazy when you think about what I did in the beginning and that time that they said was appropriate punishment for that crime right four and a half years and then over here for um for drug use i got the exact same sentence basically four years i just split it up two years a year and a year um so that to me says that you know something is clearly broken with how we we view that stuff because other than that i mean i was actually living a good life successful life right like, I wasn't committing any of the crimes. wasn't on the street. We were just using drugs. Yeah. And I mean, that's constantly what our, our country seems to be doing. And all places all around the world are, we treat people who are using drugs. And some of them are sick. Some of them are depressed, fighting depression. Some of them just enjoy drugs. But whatever the reasons are, these are nonviolent people that are not a threat to society. And we're locking them up and ruining their lives. I mean, you know, you, you won't get that time back that. I mean, ironically, I, you know, looking back on it, the, that drug use was about escape for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, was, came out and just had, you know, you're starting from nothing. It's very stressful. Um, the world is, is not easy when you have all these felonies and everything that, you, that I did to myself. But still, um, so I'm using that as an escape uh, from the reality. and that causes me to go back to mm-hmm. prison. And that's the problem with the wow. punitive system, right? When we have a system that says, all right, for your crimes, here's your punishment, no rehabilitation. So when you get out, you just got punished. Your life is hard to put back together. There's a lot of stress and a lot of depression and things that can come with that that would lead to somebody to want to escape, to want to do drugs, because facing your life with the way it was left after prison is is a hard thing to face. So it's something a lot of people have to deal with. And then we have the system where they, let's test your urine. Let's see if you're escaping. Up, you are. Back into the system. More punishment, which is like, it didn't work the first. The punishment's not helping. And psychologists have known this. Scientists have known this for decades. Like punitive systems don't cure crime. They they create more crime. We need a rehabilitative system. But the uh, private prison industry doesn't like that. They want to create more criminals, more prisoners. Yeah, and and it's um, it's it never ends, right? It never ends. So um, last week, I was actually served with a civil lawsuit from the government for ninety four thousand dollars. They're still coming after me. This has been twenty six years later, and wow. they're still trying to come. They're still coming after me, right? So, and it, and it has been, but it's like, at what point, you know, at, at what point are you rehabilitated? 
I mean, at what point, I mean, I have a nonprofit. I volunteer at an animal shelter. I haven't been in any trouble in 10 years. Um, I have a, a, a pretty good job. I have a house with two dogs. I mean, I like, like I contribute, you know what I mean? Yeah. After all, after, after 26 years, 12 years of being home and Spanish and, um, and they're yeah coming after my house now. Wow. I mean, it almost just makes you laugh, right? <laughs> I'm not, not, not really. I guess it's a good way to look at it. You have to like, like, Jesus Christ, what do you guys want? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, what would, would, you know, it's funny you asked me if I, if I did drugs when I was in prison, um, I don't know how it is in, at different places, but um, it, it was it, it was interesting to see that in t- that ecosystem. Um, you know, you, you had you know everything that there was on the street that, that you had in there, um, and you know, people with habits, uh, heroin habits, uh, cocaine, everything. It was, it was interesting to watch that. Um, but of course, I think people are doing it for the same reason too, right? Escape, the ultimate yeah. escape because you're in prison. Right. But they would get caught. This is the interesting point why I brought it up. They would get caught um, with heroin, not just dirty for heroin in your urine, like with heroin. Right. Um, and they would get a write-up. So unless, I mean, unless they, you know, they you were some sort of kingpin. I mean, you could get caught with those drugs um, or get caught with needles while you were inside. You just got wrote up and you went to segregation for two weeks and you came back and that was it. So it didn't add any time to your sentence. Didn't add any time to your sentence. Could it affect your chances of parole? Affect chances of early parole or anything? Uh, If you were getting ready to get out and go to the halfway house and you got um you got busted with something like that sure but halfway house is only the last six to 12 months of your sentence and, and that could be different now I, I haven't i don't know how for when i was there that's how it was so i mean worst case scenario but they're so overcrowded they would probably have pushed you out anyway gotcha now i'm wondering is it more uh, it's got to be a little bit more of a risk to developing a heroin habit in prison because there's a chance you get busted you're going to be without your heroin and have to go through withdrawals for a certain amount of time before you can get more there's a lot of problems with it. There's that. Um, there's the issue of how much it was. So if you so if you think a, a match head, literally the head of a match, um, that was anywhere between fifty and a hundred dollars. Jesus. And so you, amount- you can't snort that because it's not even enough. Like it to it won't even register. So you have to shoot it. So now you're in prison and you have to have needles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole difference. I've seen all, I've seen the craziest stuff people use for that. And it'll be a needle at one end, the other end, there's no telling what it'll be or how it'll, how it works for them wow, to do I that. I can only imagine that's, that's really, that's some scary shit. Yeah. There's no sanit- sanitation involved. I mean, that's, it's a sad situation for someone who has an addiction and ends up in a situation where they're using makeshift syringes to shoot up a extremely overpriced small amount of 
uh, whatever, black tar heroin or whatever they have. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. I've done black tar on the streets, and I think we pay, like, I think it was, like, 50 bucks, but it was for a huge ball of it, enough to split with a few people. Um, so, yeah, that's crazy. Match head for, you say, 50 to 100 bucks. And then, so they ha- how, do they get, how do you get money in prison? You're not making enough money in your wages with little, little jobs. You, you count on family members and the gang affiliation. Yeah, and, or, and you, you have to have money to live there. You know, it's... um. They they really don't give you anything. I mean, they give you food, of course, and and a, a bed. But I mean, if if you want anything beyond that, I mean, if you want a pair of tennis shoes instead of the prison issue boots, you, know, you have to buy them. If you want sweats to go to the rec yard, you have to buy them. If you want food, you know, obviously commissary, you have to buy it. If you want a toothbrush that's real and not this big um, and super cheap, you have to buy it. So yeah, you. You can either you have your family. I mean, most people have have a hustle, um, and then every so there's always a um, there's always a currency. So when I was there, the currency was stamps. So a stamp was a quarter. You know, so it you know yeah. If I'm if I'm getting heroin from you, I'm probably just gonna have my family or you know a friend on the street send it to your people. But for regular stuff, you know, buying a honey bun. Uh, betting on the football game, paying for a haircut. That's all. That was all with stamps. So book of stamps is a $5 bill okay. uh, back then. That was the, that's how that worked. They ended up phasing that out and they started using cans and mackerel. It was so funny right when I left, cause you'd look and you'd see guys with pillowcases full of mackerel because used to be you got $10 and you know, two books of stamps. Now you had to have 10 cans of mackerel. So yeah, they always change. They always they always come up with some sort of, of tender. That's crazy. Um, I mean, even the Jewish concentration camps, they had. I was reading this book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, and their currency was cigarettes. They said you knew a man was about to die when he smoked a cigarette because that was his currency, and that means he gave up. But it's it's so. Why is it that they can't use? Well, they don't use money. What's wrong with using a five dollar bill as a five dollar bill? Um, I think the idea is that. Um, uh, you can gamble more easily with it, or maybe if you were able to have hard currency, you could bribe a guard. I, I mean, to be honest with oh, you, so you, weren't, you weren't allowed to have currency, like right, actual money. Right, right, right. Oh, so that's no, I you had, I you had a commissary, you had a commissary account, and that's it. So you had to have something to use for that. That's interesting. So it just it plays out naturally that people will use currency. If you take away their currency, they'll find currency. That's we're trading absolutely it'll it'll be and then they crack down on the cans of, of mackerel and and there's just something else you know you could always designate something um and call it a currency right mm-hmm. clamshells yeah i mean and anything um so yeah and I, I think it's it's come along some way from that now i mean now you know they people they have computers and emails and um you know, iPads and all kinds of stuff. Something different, but that's what it was then. Got you. So, um, I was going to ask you another thing. Have you heard of this person named William Leonard Pickard? He was um, arrested for allegedly making acid, uh, a lot of acid. The the DEA predicted almost all acid around the world was his. He denies to have any part of it, but anyway, he w- he was serving a double life sentence. And um, in 2020, he was released. And he was in his 70s. So that Kenny uh, Kabinsky 
kind of 2020 thing was it covid that because he because basically covid a lot of they were kind of like let's just let some of these old people out like they've been they're, they're serving this time it doesn't make sense they're not a threat was that part of it you think uh it certainly could have been i know that uh kenny had a lot of people trying to get um you know pardons um uh, trying to get you know he's very healthy so he couldn't get compassionate release but let's see if it um you know, and, and he did so much, but I think eventually some law change helped Kenny because um, I think that they repealed, when they repealed mandatory minimum uh, sentencing laws and they made it, um, maybe that helped him. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Um, but I um, know how many people serving um, nonviolent drug offenses, especially the elderly. I mean, the fact that we have anybody in their 70s who was a nonviolent? I don't care how many drugs they smuggled. If they're in their seventies and they weren't violent, then let's get them out. It's just stupid. Like, why are we paying to keep them locked no, up? I mean, it makes no sense. Um, you know, and, and and a lot of that goes back to um, probably prosecutorial misconduct. Um, but it's also the way the laws are written. You know, you mm-hmm. have judges too with mandatory minimums back then that you know their hands were tied. Um. But yeah, I mean, that certainly did. And, and it's funny, you know, it, it used to break my heart talking to Kenny. Um, he would, you know, he'd participate in the efforts to try to get him released. But he he wasn't personally. It, it, so you see guys, they spend every spare second in the law library and trying to do, you know, trying to beat their case and appeals and, and do the most outlandish um, maneuvers to try to get you know, their sentence reduced. Kenny didn't. He was focused on being a good person and living a good life and trying to help uh, people, honestly. Um, and he worked in the education department. Like I said, he led, you know, did restorative justice. He, he taught crafts. I mean, he had this life and that was his idea was he's going to live that life to the, to the best, you know, of, uh, that means that he could and that the rest was in God's hands. And um so yeah, when I when I did see that he had been released, um I know I got a letter from him right uh, before that and he said that there were some things happening. And that's all he said. And the next thing I know he got released. So I mean I don't know what purpose uh, Aaron was served by having him in prison for 25 years or or you know the guy that you said I'm sh- I'm sure He's not out here at his age um, cooking up batches of LSD again. I wish he was, but I mean, um, that's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a different, you know, there's, to me, there's a difference in different drugs. Um, I, but I, again, I, I think that LSD should be legalized and regulated. And um, the idea that it just flows through the streets and you don't know what you're buying is ridiculous. But anyway, that's off subject. The, the idea that people are locked up for all different things. It's not just the elderly who are no longer violent, but people that weren't violent in the first place shouldn't be locked up. I mean, I was listening to or watching Bill Maher last night and he was talking about the the crazy people on, you know, the, the new liberal movements where they're like, let's legalize crime. Like this is happening in some, you know, Oregon places where they're like, we're going to stop arresting for small theft and stuff like that, which is, which I do disagree. I mean, I agree with him that that's ridiculous. You, you have to have law and order. 
But I think that movement is just misguided. They should look at it not like we're going to stop arresting for shoplifting under $250. They should look at it as we're going to stop arresting and giving you a permanent record and treating you like a criminal. A lot of these are kids, you know, we're going to, you're going to get arrested. We're going to stop you from stealing from people, but then we're going to help you stop doing that. We're going to, you know, not going to give you a criminal record because some of these kids just, they don't, you know, poverty is a big issue, right? If you're, if the kids that don't come from poverty don't usually shoplift unless they're just trying to impress somebody that, you know, they don't have, you know, to have the cool jacket, they just tell the parents to use the credit card. So I think fixing poverty that should be more important, a goal that we focus on versus um, harsh crimes for people who are shoplifting and stuff like that. I mean, you know, you know what drives me absolutely insane, um, it gets me really angry and few things do is, you know, when you hear people you know, talk about um, people that come out of those bad situations, maybe inner city poverty, um, you know, and, and believe me, I, I live, I, I've known so many of these guys over the years um, that I got to know really well. Uh, and they, they really do exist in a, in a situation where they don't see a lot of options, right? I mean, I'm, the options exist, but they, they're not doing them any good and then you hear people, and this is what makes me angry. They say, well, so, so-and-so came out of there and he became a doctor or, or he became a lawyer. And that's fantastic. But not everybody can be doctors and lawyers. and Not everyone can even understand that those options exist and that they can reach them. Because all they're surrounded by are examples of not that, right? Exactly. And so a lot of guys told me, you know, this is this was like, you know, I had two choices, you know, I could, you know, sell drugs or whatever. I mean, that, that was it. If they wanted to better themselves, if they wanted to try to, to get out of that situation, if they want to try to even support their family, um, that's what they knew to do. Um, and so, you know, more than anything, I think, you know, a deal with that, deal with those kids in those situations and, you know, make sure the opportunities reach them and that the um that they're even aware of those options and that they're real and even the kids that know yeah they know they can go to school and then college and then whatever it just doesn't seem real it's not realistic to them i i completely agree with you and that's our country's mentality is pick yourself up you can do it and they love those stories that you're talking about the one person that made it out. That's all they need is one person to point out and say, well, he did it. Therefore you should be able to do it. It's like, well, there's going to be somebody that just happened to get the right mix of DNA or the, had the right person, the right family member that guide them in, or something that happened to them that just made them see, see, keep their eye on the prize or just had that drive. And that one person is not everybody. The other kid that, you know, suffered a lot of, also a lot of these kids suffer from PTSD, from abuse or different th- violence that they've seen growing up. And, and then the kids that don't suffer from that, that might, you know, become successful, then you point at them and say, why aren't you doing it? It's like, well, have you mentally evaluated the difference between the two? Cause I guarantee there's going to be a lot of differences there, but they don't care. It's all pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. And there's also a huge racism, a racist thing about this, because then what we do is we, we look at entire groups of people and we say, well, why isn't your group doing as good as our group? Because you had the same opportunities as us. So that clearly means there's something wrong with the African-American community. And I've heard different excuses for this. Oh, it's because of the breakdown of their family. It's like, well, you're the one breaking down their fucking family by arresting all of them. But the, um, the idea, this bootstrap mentality, we have to get past it and realize that if we have a society that has a safety net, 
that helps the that will help the poor and help people get jobs and create jobs, then we can pull people out of poverty and we can't just expect them to do it themselves, especially as jobs are literally being lost every day to automation. We're seeing the jobs disappear. Well, you know, don't show me the doctors and lawyers, you know, the one or two that came out of that city. Show me the the plumbers and the project managers and the you know, the, the, the people that you went to school and got a degree or picked up a trade and became successful, um, you know, that, that's, that's what you don't see, right? That's what you don't see. Of course, you might see one or someone become a doctor, a lawyer, or go pro in a sport. Um, but the, the opportunities that, that are there to just, to just be, you know, upper middle class and normal, and success and have a stable, successful life. Um, that's what's not really uh, available there. And it would I don't know realistic. how to show children those people would be more realistic instead of the hero worship, where it's like you're either this or you're nothing. Right, exactly, exactly. Whereas, but coming out of you know, coming out of my neighborhood, all the kids I grew up with are all like that kind of thing, you know, regional sales managers. Um, you know, or whatever, and are, and are successful, but are not, you know, or didn't hit the stratosphere by any stretch of the imagination. But the majority of all the kids in my neighborhood ended up okay and fairly successful, just like their parents. So, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I can tell you um, that, you know, a lot of the kids that I met from the inner cities that, you know, that turned to dealing drugs then ended up in prison. They, they didn't really want to do it. They, they, they wasn't like their dream. Um, they were smart. Um, you know, on that level, the ones that I was locked up at the federal prison, they were the upper echelon of the um, whatever organizations. Um, so they were smart. They were ambitious. But I mean, if you ask them, like, you know, why did you choose this? Why didn't you? I mean, that would, they would laugh at you. Mm -hmm. You know, that they, they would laugh at you. So I mean, the, you know, one kid I knew was a, you know, you, you, they're great artists, right? You know, they're humans. They have talents, um, but they just don't have opportunities. And that, I mean, I know that this is a podcast about drugs, but that all ties together. As well, you know, it's, whether it's not, using. It's not just a podcast about drugs. It's about the war on drugs, which is the main focus. And yes, right. I like to do drugs. I've always liked drugs. I also think drugs can be dangerous for some people. I think addiction is a serious problem. Overdose obviously is a problem. These are all problems that are worse under prohibition. But um, yeah, I'm not just pro-drugs. I'm, I'm more for the institutionalized, basically violence against our own people, which is the arresting of nonviolent people. We have more citizens of our own citizens behind bars than any other nation in the world. And we call ourselves the land of the free and we sing songs about it proudly. I think we need to, if we want to be that, we should be that. But we need to put our money where our mouth is and be the land of the free and let these nonviolent people out of prison immediately. So... That's where I'm at with this whole thing. Well, I guess uh, thanks for being on here. I, I, I think we covered a lot of ground. and um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. And, um, you know, maybe we get you back on here sometime next time I'm up in North Carolina with Kevin. Of course, you're not in Charlotte. I always go to Charlotte when I go up there. That's where my I family have to go is. to Charlotte, too, because I have to see him down there. Well, then next time we go up to Charlotte, um, we'll hit you up. Maybe come out and hang out. Sounds good, man. Thank you. I think thanks for being on here. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, you too.
All right, Peace Nicks, thanks for listening. Remember, if you're enjoying what we're doing here, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at the Peace on Drugs, Instagram, Facebook. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com. Subscribe to our, to our newsletter. And thank you so much for listening. And this music that you're hearing is Twiggy Branches. Check out Twiggy Branches on Apple, on Spotify, and peace out. You pay for what you can't. You pay for what you can't. When you align yourself with the full PM jet set. Are you my doctor? Are you my dealer?